It is um, the weekend. This weekend has been dedicated to the celebration of the birth of the United States of America. And before the message, I would like to tell you, I believe strongly that we should celebrate its birth, this great nation, even in these times where things seem to be turning from center, away from where this nation was founded, I think it's all the more important that we as individuals uh, and as Christians celebrate uh, the founding of this country. 233 years ago, our forefathers declared independence. The greatest celebration, the greatest way to pay tribute to that fact is to gather for worship in freedom And proclaim the name of Christ. Many in our nation. Will turn aside from worshiping Christ today. In what they call public worship. And will spend their time. Celebrating and singing ditties about our country. And in that I think they pay a great disservice. To our forefathers. Who came here. For one reason, one driving passion, freedom to express their love for Christ without interference from anyone else. When we join together to proclaim the name of Christ, we celebrate our founding. We celebrate the men who have died. We celebrate our forefathers' beliefs. Yesterday, as I celebrated with my family, I was called to mind many of the things I've learned. And I would encourage young parents with young children to, I don't know if these books are even being sold now or not, but if you find any book written by Peter Marshall, you buy it, you give it to your children, and you read it with them. It is one of the best tellings of the founding of this nation and its perseverance um, ever written, in my opinion, in the English language to pay tribute to our founding. This has been a wonderful, wonderful nation who has stood for liberty and justice and who has also, though she has many sins, spread the gospel as well and as far as any nation. We should thank God for her, this nation. We should pray for our leaders. We should celebrate the birth. But we should extend into the future the founding principles of this country by not holding the banner necessarily. Not holding the banner necessarily of regionalism or even nationalism, but rather holding the banner as men and women of Christ, of the gospel. That's what, that's what this nation was founded for. That all men might know the gospel and that they might know the Savior. I thank God for this country, for the opportunity to stand, to proclaim in freedom the gospel, But more than anything, I thank God that I'm a son of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we often can confuse 
patriotism for Christianity and Christianity for patriotism. Forgive us for this sin in which we've made our country an idol, its system, something to be more than maintained but worshipped. Call us again to a fresh conviction of the founding principles of this nation. Remind us that men and women left their motherland to come to this place that they might establish free worship and proclamation of the gospel. Though there were multiple reasons, that reason stands above all else. And God, at the founding of this country, may we remember that it was seminarians, men of God, who by proclaiming the gospel, sowed the seed for freedom. May we remember that it is futile to establish free societies unless we also establish the gospel which brings freedom in Christ. So, Lord, as our nation turns from you and as our nation turns from that principle of freedom, it is no wonder that our freedoms become less and less. We become more and more restrained, more and more confused, and we have lost our way. God, now the light is shining in other places. And we thank you for that, that your church has never been contained in the borders of a country, but rather throughout the world your name is being proclaimed. God, I thank you that now men and women in Latin America and in Asia are picking up where we have faltered and that they are now taking the gospel to us and taking the gospel to the fellow men of their continents. May we rejoin them in the fight, and may we fight for your name and for your cause, not our own. We do pause to celebrate God as it's right to do, the founding of this nation. But God, may we never worship a nation. Rather, may we worship you, the author and the finisher of our faith. May our citizenship be clear. Primarily, we are citizens of heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. A dying man's manifesto. We've been in this sermon series now. It's the fourth week. And I want to bring a message entitled, Treasuring Christ as the Treasure of Heaven. And in John 14, verses 1 through 3, I believe we see a very crucial passage to understanding where our treasure is. Now, to get the context, I want to back up into verse 36 of chapter 13. Sometimes chapter divisions are confusing. They distract us. They cut apart the Bible in unnatural ways. You know, when the Bible was written, there was neither chapter nor verse. And so the first readers of this gospel, the gospel according to John, would have read right along. They wouldn't have paused. They wouldn't have seen a big number 14 or a number 1. So let's... Begin back in verse 36, and let's look together at this passage. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. We said that was in reference to the cross. He's going to die, 
and then back to the Father. Peter can't go now. He can't die for, for Christ. Christ must die for him. He can't return to the Father because that's not the role that he's to play in this, these moments. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This pledge of faithfulness that Peter makes here stands out, doesn't it? And Jesus says, would you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You also believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, that gives the context to the three verses we want to look at this morning. When I first divided this up months ago, I foolishly put verses 1 through 14 together in one sermon. That would have lasted all day. Trust me. Beginning of last week, I saw that wasn't going to work, so I went to 1 through 7. About Wednesday of this week, I went to 1 through 4. Now I've kind of settled on 1 through 3, and I may not get through verse 1, to be honest. There's a ton here. There's a lot to get done in a little bit of time. We're here in the, what we've called the Holy of Holies of John's Gospel. This is the purest theology given, the most unbroken words of Christ in all the Bible. We see from verse chapter 13 through chapter 17, containing His high priestly prayer in the garden, continuous almost words of Jesus, teachings at the end of His life. That's why we've called it a manifesto. These are His beliefs as He's getting ready to die. He's within hours of death. On a cross. We've seen over the past three weeks that in his last days on earth, Jesus washed the disciples' feet to show how you must serve and to show a servant leadership. Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room in chapter 13 also about love and that love was to be the mark which identified them as his children and separated them from the world. And last week, we've we saw that Jesus identified Judas as a betrayer, Peter as a denier, and the thing that separated them was not their humanity. It was not that Peter was a better person than Judas, but rather that Jesus had chosen Peter for salvation and he had not chosen Judas. Their sin is the same. They both betrayed Christ that night. And so we come... And we read the passage that I've just read, 
And we're going to focus on these first three verses this morning. Again, the title of the message, if you get the title, you can remember this message. Treasuring Christ as the treasure of heaven. Heaven's a topic that's discussed often in our society, especially down south. Songs are written about it. People write poems about heaven. I mean, it's everywhere. The church, and the Christian church, spends a lot of time talking about heaven. We've developed some elaborate thoughts about heaven. I mean, books and books of thoughts about heaven. And often we don't even know where those thoughts come from, really. They're not in the Bible. We just kind of go off on a tangent in regard to heaven. We're fascinated with it, with heaven. Listen to the lyrics of a couple of popular uh, songs in the South, especially. And I remember them as a kid when I was growing up. And just listen to these words, okay? A mansion's waiting in glory. My Savior has gone to prepare. The ransomed who shine in its beauty will dwell in that city so fair. That's a take on John 14, verse 2, isn't it? Now listen to what it says. Oh, home above, I'm going to dwell in that home. O home of love, get ready, poor sinner, and come. Second verse, a mansion. You see a theme? A mansion of rest for the weary who toil in the vineyard of love. O sinner, believe and be ready to enter the mansion above. You starting to see a theme? Third verse, a mansion. Is he driving the point home? What's he want you thinking about? Mansions. Mansions. I'm talking about Bill Gates-sized mansions. Bigger than Bill Gates. Platinum mansions. Diamond-laden mansions. A mansion where heavenly music enraptures the glorified throng. They're singing salvation. This is only the second time we see anything in the song about a Savior or salvation. But we've been talking about mansions continually. Oh, sinner, come join in that beautiful song. A mansion, verse 4, where angels are waiting. Now we're talking about the angels to welcome the holy and true. And when did the Savior low kneeling? This line really bothers me. They'll sing a sweet anthem for you. Now we're not only focusing on mansions, but on the centrality of heaven being us in our mansions. Is your heart warmed? Do you feel comforted? Be careful what you believe about heaven. Because it reveals a lot about your soul and who you really worship. Be careful. A mansion unclouded by sorrow, undimmed by the pains of farewell, where all the earth's pilgrims will gather Finally, the last line of the song, with Christ in His glory to dwell. I'm glad He finally mentioned it. Because, see, He built this concept of heaven for five verses without mentioning really straightforwardly the presence of Jesus Christ, except by one little word at the beginning. Maybe you know this one better. That one might not be your favorite. Just because I enjoy this sort of thing, I limited it only to two because I could have gone on and on and on and on. We could say it for hours and listen to lyrics of songs on heaven. 
See if you recognize this one. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below. A little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, which is the title of the song. In that bright land where we'll never grow old and someday yonder we will never more wander but walk on streets that are purest gold. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm but a pilgrim in search of the city. I want a mansion, a harp, and a crown. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander but walk on the streets that are purest gold. Trash theology. Utter rubbish. You can sing an entire song about heaven and never mention its treasure. That concept is non-existent in the Bible. We need to come face to face with the fact that these popular songs, especially, unfortunately, with an older generation, which my granddad was a part of, and I love him, and he saw it in his day and preached hard against it, and everybody kind of laughed and said, Preacher, you just take things too seriously. But he was right. They teach a false theology about our hope and about our Lord and most certainly about eternity. It is false hope. If you're hoping that your mainstay in heaven will be a mansion of gold, you will be sorely disappointed. One, because there's no mansion of gold. And two, because you probably won't be in heaven. That's a bold statement. I plan to back it up with the text we're looking at. There's so many songs to choose from, and none of them good in their theology. What's wrong with these songs and others like them? Let me say it very plainly. The focus of heaven is not gold, it's not silver, it's not jewels, it's not mansions, it's not eating, it's not leisurely activity, it's not ageless existence, or any other of the pleasures which we always talk about and sing about. The focus of heaven is living with Jesus Christ. Christ is the center focus of heaven, not your mansion of gold. You say, but in Revelation 21, Carlton skipped it, but all the details are there, preacher. It talks about it. That's the problem with wooden literalism. When you apply wooden literalism to a text, you miss its meaning. John, I do not believe, had any desire to teach a theology of riches, but rather to teach that it is indescribable what will be in heaven. Not that there will be streets of gold. The point is, gold, which is one of the most, ref- most sought-after commodities in all the world, will be pavement on the street. Will there be golden streets? I really don't know. Because that's not the point of the texts. The point of the text is that gold will be like asphalt. It'll be commonplace. 
if it's there, it won't be worth a lot compared to the treasure of heaven, which is immaterial in that sense, the treasure of heaven being the material of Jesus Christ. The problem with our thoughts about heaven are they are filled to the brim with a disgusting idolatry called materialism. That's what heaven has become. A place where all of us get all we ever wanted, but couldn't quite attain in this life. It's disgusting to God. It should be disgusting to us. Let's look at this text. Jesus is talking about heaven. And let's see what his focus is. First of all, treasuring Christ dispels anxiety. That's the first thing we see in the text. Treasuring Christ does away with anxiety. Peter has just been told, you will deny me. Peter is the apostle of all apostles. He's the leader of the apostle band. If he's not going to make it, what hope, what hope is there for someone like Bartholomew or doubting Thomas? If Peter's not going to live up to what he says he believes, they're all going to fail. Do you see that in the end of verse, the verses in chapter 13? Why does Jesus in the very first verse say, don't be anxious in your heart? Because he knows they are. Judas is going to betray him. Peter's going to deny him. What hope do we have? Judas is the money keeper. He's the most trusted. Peter is the, the leader of this band. The greatest of the apostles. Neither of them are going to make it. We're out, dude. We have no hope. And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be filled with worry, anxiousness, fear. How can he say don't be worried? Because worry is defeated by who you believe in. And that's where we're going to go right here. Anxiety is caused by uncertainty. Look in verse 1a. Let not your hearts be troubled. I say it's based on uncertainty because Judas is going to betray him. Peter's going to deny him. Now, they don't know where they stand. They're all discombobulated. They're worried. It's uncertainty. That's when it creeps into your life, too. When you're doing a job or a mundane project, which you do day in and day out, you have no concern and no worry. When does worry creep in? When you're either inept at doing what you're doing or you're not sure how it will come out in the end, now we get worried. Right? Anxiety is caused by uncertainty. Jesus is leaving. Peter's denying. Judas is betraying. What about us? Jesus says, don't worry. Don't be anxious. They're all scared. What will happen when he leaves us? They're now sure that he means what he says. He's leaving and he's going to leave by death. I mean, he's not just going on a trip. He's not just going to die of natural causes. He's going to get killed. What's going to happen to us? Uncertainty rides in the heart. 
Anxiety begins to build. And Jesus says, don't worry. Do not be anxious. Let not your heart get overwhelmed with fear. Because secondly, we see in this first part that anxiety demonstrates a lack of faith. Why do you get worried when you're uncertain? Because you don't really believe God is the author and the finisher of your faith. Because you don't really believe that He takes even your worst situations and cultivates them and crafts them for your good. Anxiety comes on us because we lack faith. And we might as well admit it. Jesus acknowledges the anxiety in his disciples. They haven't said they're scared, but Jesus heads them off at the past and says, I know you're filled with fear. I know you're afraid. This word that's translated troubled here, don't let your heart be troubled or don't let your heart be anxious, is this word that is sometimes used in reference to the Lord. He was troubled in spirit, right? So it must have more than one use, and it does. Because, see, Jesus' troubling was an emotional troubling or a spiritual struggle, not because of a lack of faith, but rather because of the enormity of the task before Him and the weakness of His flesh. The Lord had weakness in His flesh. His spirit then was at war, even in His flesh, to cause Him to obey the Father at every point. And so He's troubled. But His trouble's not sin. His trouble's rather a weakness which is inherent in mankind. Because of the fall, we're all... Our flesh is weak. But that's not the use here in this text. This use matches better with Matthew 6, 25. Same word. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. What you will wear or what you will eat or what you will drink is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Worry is the intent of the word in verse 1. Don't worry. Don't lack faith. How do I know this? Because the second part of the verse, what does he command them to do? They are commands. They're imperatives. Though there are many options in translating this, the best is to say, you believe in God. You also believe in me. You are believing in God. You are believing in me. It's a command. Do it. Why? Because the treasuring of Christ, the believing in Jesus Christ, dispels insecurity and doubt and fear. It does away with it. Some of you are so bound with anxiousness and fear. And you're looking for the solution. Christ is the solution. I know of no other solution. I know of no other solution. Anxiety, third, is destroyed by treasuring Christ. Now, in the text it says, believe in God, believe also in me. But 
I'm calling it treasure, and this is not original with me. This is rather John Piper's phrase about belief. And the reason I've used it is because, like he says, we all misunderstand what believing is. And now, this message is going to take on very significant meaning for you, I hope, right here. If you didn't hear anything and don't agree with me at all about heaven, okay, it's okay for you to be wrong. But if you get this one wrong, heaven won't matter. Because this is the crux. This is, this is the point. When Jesus talks about heaven, he's talking about himself. And he requires belief. And we're going to talk about belief. The solution given in Scripture for anxiety is trusting or believing in God. Psalm 56, 3 through 4. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, the psalmist says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. What can flesh do to me? When David was in the middle of the battle and the flesh and blood around him was waging war to kill him, his trust was not in his sword or his shield or his spear or his muscles or his mind or his abilities. It was in God. In God I trust. What can flesh do to me? The Scripture dispels anxiety through strong belief in God. That's how we conquer anxiety and fear and worry. And it's not just in Psalm 56, 3 through 4. Matthew 6, 19 through 24, listen to this, and I, th- I think you'll uh, be able to make a connection. He says, don't lay up for yourselves, Jesus speaking, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now I want to return to that passage in just a moment. I just say that to tell you where I'm talking about treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does it mean to treasure Christ, we might ask? What does that mean? It sounds good, but what does it mean? It means to have faith in Him. Pistis, the little word in the Greek translated for us, faith or believe. John uses it six times. More than this particular type or use of the word is used six times. We find it in John 14, verse 1, but it's five other times, and he uses it more than anybody in the Bible. This word treasure, or that I'm calling treasure, which is belief. Believe. Faith is what treasuring is. Faith. Trust. But we've got a problem still because how do we define faith? And in our day, in our churches, this is where we go astray. This is where I go astray if I'm not careful. I think this is where you might falter. See if you've thought of faith this way. Faith is believing 
the reasonable and true facts about who Jesus is. You ever heard those kinds of sermons? If you want to be saved, believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now He's back in heaven. Believe and have faith in Jesus. And what does that implicitly say to everybody in the congregation? Jesus is the Son of God. Check. Got it. I believe that. That's a fact. True. True false test. Jesus is sinless. True. He died on the cross. True. He was buried and resurrected. True. He's ascended to heaven. True. I'm in. No. If you're in based on that kind of faith, all the demons in hell are going to dwell with Him forever. Satan himself is the best believer among us. That's not what the Bible means at all, talking about faith. It's not less than the facts, but it's a lot more than the facts. So, seeing that, we started to talk about trust, which for a long time carried the day. Trust. Because trust meant fiduciary responsibility. In other words, like your bank, you trust them. We even put it in the titles of banks, right? We take our hard-earned money, we give it to the teller, she puts it in the vault, and we trust them. They've got it. So that's a biblical description of faith, trust, taking who you are, placing it in Jesus, the vault, the vouchsafe, the vault, and saying, I trust you, you've got my life. And for a long time, that probably was a great description of what it means to believe in Jesus. Because it worked. But it's well worn out now. Because you can go on the streets of America and 78% of people in this nation say they have trust in Jesus. 51% of them are Protestants. 26% of them are Evangelicals. Millions and millions and millions of people in this country say they trust Jesus. And yet their lives look nothing like the Bible says their life will look like if they actually trust Jesus. There's no fruit being born. There's no revival. We ought to be in a state of continual revival if those stats are true. I'm talking about people ought to be coming to Christ by the droves, thousands upon thousands. We ought to be having to tell people, look, you can't quit your job and go overseas and serve on the mission field. You just can't do it. If you do, we're going to be in trouble back here at home. Stay here. You're more strategic here. But you never have to tell anybody that in this country. You have to connive and beg them to go somewhere in the name of Christ. Why? Because they don't really trust. We've come up with this modified system of faith where I believe the facts and I hand over my life But my hand stays on my life, and that keeps Jesus at a distance. Because where the bank analogy fails biblically is you're not just to hand your life to the bank, Jesus, but His life becomes your life. My fear for Grace Fellowship and for those like us is that we've got pews filled with people 
who believe all the facts and they've handed their life this way, but there's been no receiving of Christ. They've got him at arm's distance. A safe arm's distance. So I don't like to talk about faith anymore because when I go to the coffee shop and I share about faith, when I get to that point in the presentation, but they're on my side. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I didn't know what you were talking about for a minute. I thought you were talking about radical faith. Dude, I'm, I'm not radical, but I believe in Jesus. I'm in. I'm okay. I don't talk about trust anymore. It's useless. Oh, yeah, I trust Jesus. Sure, yeah, absolutely. He's, you know, God, and I'm going to go to heaven. But that's where it stops. So, listening to a message years back, and then it was refreshed again lately by John Piper, my mind was set in on fire. Because he didn't even make a point. He just said, you must treasure Christ. That's the theme. That's the picture of our church. Treasure Christ. And then he went on preaching what he was preaching. And my mind thought, treasure Christ. And then I started searching the Bible. Now I want to define for you what treasure is, what treasure in Christ is, in contrast, obviously, to what I've already said believing, or in support of what I've said believing and trust is, But it goes further. Okay, so I want to make sure we get on the same page. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. This is the key. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure and dug a hole and buried it in a field. Okay, this is what treasure in Christ means. This is the definition of faith. Then, going and selling all that he had, he bought the field that he might have the treasure. That's the kingdom of God. Do you understand the significance of a passage like that? His joy is to sell all he has and buy the treasure. Faith, as we've often said, it is like seeing the treasure, believing it's a treasure, thinking it's true, but going unchanged. Many of you have sat under preaching all of your life, literally. You were born You were born in a church. And when somebody says, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved and to go to heaven, you say, I'm in. And you don't even give thought to the fact, have you actually sold everything in joy so that you might have Jesus? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a pearl of high price. And when he finds the pearl of great value, he sold all that he had and bought the pearl. You shouldn't be able to sit under that verse 
if you're a believer and worry. If you've trusted and treasured Christ, anxiety is gone about the future and it's gone about heaven and it's gone about so many things because now all that matters is you have Christ. He is the treasure. He is the pearl. For too long we've described faith rationally. It's time we begin to biblically define it. Biblically defining it is a verse like Psalm 34. I want you to hold your place in John and turn to Psalm 34. Because here again is a biblical description of what it means to treasure Jesus Christ. What it means to have faith. What it means to be a Christian. I don't know if that's sinking in yet. But I'm of the suspicion that many in our churches are not Christians. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just trying to be observant. I'm not singling any of you out, but I want you to single yourself out. Is this the description of your life, what we're about to read? Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him, in Christ. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's treasuring. If you've told your child or yourself that they are Christians because they believe the set of facts, you need to recant that statement and teach them what it means to treasure Him. Because if you don't, you're dooming your child. Treasure Him. I, I, I can't go on without saying this. You cannot treasure Him. You cannot treasure Him and treasure your possessions. Because Matthew 6 says, you can't serve two masters. You will either serve God or you'll serve your money, but you can't serve both. So if you're looking, do I treasure Christ? Look at your possessions. How do you treat your possessions? If your life is consumed with gaining possessions, if your life is consumed and your trust is placed in the balance of your bank account or retirement or whatever else, you count as a possession. Your homes, your cars. Jesus said, not me. You can't serve those things and God. What's your first response? When crisis comes and the zeros start falling off the bank account. Panic? Worry? Fear, don't let your heart be troubled. 
you do believe in God, don't you? You do believe in me, don't you? It's not just money, though, is it? It's much more deceptive than that. If we could do that, we'd all take assessment. But it's harder than that, isn't it? Because some of you are worshiping and treasuring your family. Oh, you could give a rip about your house or your car or your job or your vacations. But when it comes to your family, you're undone. And when tragedy strikes, you wall up. You turn from God to becoming the impenetrable force called family. The protective shield goes out about you. Nobody gets close. Not even Jesus. Oh, and you flowered up with we're just taking care of our own and all the worldly things we've been taught. Jesus says, you can't treasure that and me. You'll either sell that and have me or you'll have that and not me, but you can't have both. How do you spend your money? How do you use your family? Do you really believe in Him? Or is this just a charade? And for some of you, it's even more deceptive. Because you treasure your righteousness. In our church, I think the biggest struggle and danger we face is that we love our righteousness. We love our righteousness. We are good people. Moral people. Protestant work ethic. And the like. And what we've done is trained armies to go into the world, be productive, say they believe in Jesus, and die without Jesus Christ. Having a good child means they don't get arrested, they got a good job, they marry well, and they have good children. That's a lie. And it reveals where your treasure is and where my treasure is. And it's not Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's... Strong teaching. That's too far, preacher. I don't agree with you. I just beg you to hold judgment and study the Bible. Read it. Don't take my word for it. Please, search it. Nowhere will you find a command to simply rationally accept facts. You will find a command to treasure. And then you'll start trying to define that. And as you go, you will see treasuring means cutting yourself free from everything. Some of you are experiencing it right now for the first time. Your family is falling away because you trust Christ and are free to express it. And it's cutting them apart. They're leaving you. And Jesus would say, 
The gospel's a sword. It divides families against family, friend against friend. It happens. Some of you have just come to the realization that your treasure was in your things. And your things are quickly being depleted. And your joy is quickly being raised because you're seeing as you cut away from the worldly things a new treasure. And His name is Jesus. And you say, if I lose all earthly good, they can't take my soul. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me. Anxious hearts are quieted by belief in Christ. I want to end this way. I told you we might not get out of verse 1. We didn't. Because I believe it's that crucial of a concept. I'm going to end this way just by an analogy and then a prayer and then we'll move to the other things and go home. You know, for a long time in my life, I would have claimed Christ, but He wouldn't have claimed me. I walked the aisle when I was five and I said a prayer and I was baptized and I was earnest as well as I could be. But it wasn't until seven, eight years later that this treasuring concept began to click. I wouldn't have phrased it this way, but it began to click. And this is what happened. I've... I found myself unable to defend belief in Christ. Because when I tried to defend it at 12 and 13 years old, what I would say is, well, you need to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. Well, I don't want to go to heaven. Because you don't want to go to hell. Okay, well, who said I'm going to go to hell? God. Well, who's God to tell me I'm going to go to hell? I don't know. But you better believe. Well, what does that mean? And I went through the facts. And that's all I could do. And I I honestly believe now, had I died then, I, I wouldn't have known him. I wouldn't have known Him. I would have known about Him. Just like I know about the President, George Washington, John Adams. I know them about them. This is the statements I must have in my life. This stool represents them. I believe it. It's good. This stool's better than that stool because of the facts. 
And so because it's the best I've got, I'll take it. That's how I came to Jesus early on. That's what I thought was salvation. He's better than the alternative, so I'll take him. I don't want to take the bet and lose because I'll go to hell, so I'll take Jesus. You can't come to God that way. Can't do it. You must see this stool, who is Jesus, as precious. You must see this stool, which is Jesus, as a treasure. The treasure. Not one of many, a little better than the rest. The only treasure. You must taste him and see that he is good. It's not enough to say, well, he looks like the best seed out of the bunch. Better than Buddha, better than Muhammad, better than those other New Age religions, better than atheism. I'll sit here. Matthew 7 applies directly to that text. Many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew who you are. But we believe the facts and we did good things. I don't know you. Get out of my sight. I think that happens because they did not treasure him. They did a lot of things for him. They believed a lot of facts about him. They knew about him, but they did not know him. Heaven, the eternal dwelling, the new heaven and earth is reserved for those. The dwelling place of God with men is is reserved for those who, in believing in him, meaning they grasp him, as the ultimate and only treasure. No alternatives. Nothing else. If you, if you wouldn't say that you've done that, then you really need to wrestle with who you are in Christ and whether you even know Him. Let's pray. Father, Father,